First Peter. And in our study of this important letter, we have seen how Peter has set before his readers the wonderful blessings and benefits belonging to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter describes them in unique ways. He mentions that they were foreknown by the Father. They are sanctified in the Spirit. And they are sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. They've been born again to living hope. They have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for them that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. God is keeping his inheritance in heaven for all of his elect. It's waiting for us right now up there in glory. And uh, we may struggle with various trials here and now in this world of woe, but God is preserving us in the faith. He is keeping us by his power. Someone said he is both keeping the inheritance for us and he is keeping us for the inheritance. And so Peter encourages us by reminding us of this glorious salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Though now we have maybe a little glimpse of the glory that awaits us, the day is coming when we will have it full-blown. So he's encouraging us uh, with this glorious salvation. He urges us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed in the last time at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in light of these blessings, he then moves on to exhort us to be holy while we are waiting for that final day In this life, we are to live holy lives because God is holy. We're to conduct ourselves with godly fear during our time of exile. The idea here in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that if God has saved us in Christ, if he has given us this glorious inheritance, then shouldn't we devote our lives to serving him with holy fear and reverence. The Apostle Peter has called for his readers to conduct themselves with a reverential fear. A fear before God in light of this God whom we call as Father, knowing he is an impartial judge and he will judge everyone according to their deeds. But such reverence is not just grounded on a healthy recognition of God as judge. It also comes from a deep gratitude for all that God has done for us in sending his only begotten son to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. When we pause to reflect upon who God is and all that he has done for us, but we should be moved and motivated to live lives pleasing to him in all that we say and do. Peter gives us several incentives to inspire our devotion toward holiness and reverent living. 
And we see some of these here in our text this morning in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, and and following. Uh, Our relationship with God, uh, Peter has shown, is a Trinitarian relationship. It's initiated by the Father in eternity. It's accomplished by the Son in time. And it's supplied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Peter teaches this in the opening of his letter. And he now impresses upon us the response that should flow out of each of our lives as a result of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In light of all that he has done, how should we live? Peter says, with holy lives, in godly fear. Look with me here at verses 17 through 19. Let's just get a little bit of the context of what we will be looking at this morning. Peter writes, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And as we focus on these words, the main thought here is that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sin in order to save us and make us holy. And in support of this key thought, we can see uh, three supporting sub-thoughts. The first is that Peter wants us to remember that we were ransomed. Verse 18 opens with the participle knowing, which carries the idea that you really know this, you already know this, or since you know it, or because you already know it. And it's not here that Peter is telling his readers something new that they didn't already know before. He's acknowledging that they already have known this. And instead of reminding them of what they already knew, uh, he wants them to realize that uh, they were ransomed. That's what they knew. They now belong to a new master, one who has paid for their release and has purchased for them a new freedom to serve God. You see, back in Peter's day, in the Greco-Roman culture, there existed a custom called sacral manumission. I didn't say ammunition. I didn't say manumission, but manumission. As I was reading these academic scholarly commentaries, this word manumission kept coming up. And I honestly had never seen it before. I had to Look it up in the dictionary to find out what the definition of it was. The word means a discharge or release from slavery. Slavery was a very common custom in those days. Slaves existed among all races and colors and for various reasons and purposes. Slaves could be released in times of war, kind of as a prisoner exchange. 
But also, slaves could find their release with the payment of money. Uh, In regular life, uh, if a slave could save up money, slaves were able to have money back in those days. They could save up their silver and gold pieces. And if they had enough, they could purchase their own freedom by depositing that money into the treasury of the local temple of whatever pagan gods were being worshipped in that particular area or city. And that money would be deposited in honor of the local gods or a specific god or goddess. And the money would pass through the temple treasury to the owner of that slave, minus a a transaction fee. And the slave would be released. But it would look to the owner as if the temple god or goddess had bought that slave, making it appear that he was now the property of the god from where the money came. So even though the slave was now free in relation to the outward society, he was now considered a slave of the god of that temple who more or less purchased him and and paid for him. And so that slave was reckoned to be redeemed or ransomed by the specific deity to whom he now belonged. And that is sacral manumission. So Peter here is reminding his readers that they had been redeemed, and they had been redeemed by the payment of a price, but it wasn't with silver or gold, but with the ransom of Christ. The idea of manumission would have been very familiar to the readers of Peter's day and culture. And he writes here in the opening of verse 18, knowing that you were redeemed, or as the ESV Bible puts it, knowing that you were ransomed, ransomed. Uh, Professor John Murray of Westminster Seminary years ago He wrote an excellent book I recommend to all of you entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Professor Murray says the language of redemption is the language of purchase and more specifically of ransom. And ransom is the securing of a release by the payment of a price. The word of our Lord Jesus himself, he writes in Matthew 28, Matthew 20, 28, supports this. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Professor Murray says, This should place beyond all doubt three facts. First, that the work he came into the world to accomplish is the work of ransom. Second, that the giving of his life was the ransom price. And then third, that this ransom was substitutionary in nature. Ransom presupposes some kind of bondage or captivity. And redemption, therefore, implies that from which the ransom secures us. 
So when we think of the concept of ransom, of Christ's ransom, we need to think of it in terms of an objective, finished accomplishment. Redemption accomplished on Christ's part. He did it. He finished it. As he said on the cross, it is finished once and for all. As Hebrews 9.26 says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, how thankful you and I should be to the Lord Jesus Christ for the perfect, finished work that he accomplished in his life and in his death at the cross. Revelation 5, 9 gives us a picture of those in heaven singing a new song and they're saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, from every language, from every people and every nation. Oh, dear friend, we should be able to join our voices with those in heaven in glorifying the Lamb of God. So Peter wants us to remember that we were ransomed. And then secondly, if you look at verse 18... Secondly, we need to remember what we were ransomed from. What were we ransomed out of? He says that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The New King James Version says, redeemed from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. I like the NIV, it says, redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. You know, some scholars say that this could apply to the Gentile audience. But John Calvin and others believe that Peter was writing to an audience that was predominantly Jewish and that their life prior to Christ could also be characterized as the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The jury is still out in my mind as to whether uh, these were Gentiles and Peter's writing in a figurative way about their exile or whether they were Jews and he's writing in the literal way that they really had been exiled to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But either way, the empty way of life involved their religious and social culture prior to their conversion. It included the false religious traditions, whether Gentile or Jewish, and the general lifestyle that had been passed down to them from their ancestors. Peter says it was futile, it was worthless, meaningless, empty of all hope with no lasting value in light of the gospel. I think back of my own life being raised a Roman Catholic 
in a a nice home, uh, believing that I was a very religious person, that me and God had a, a saving relationship or a saving understanding. And how even uh, when I was 17, I was a senior in high school, enrolled in real estate school, and got my license at 18. By the time I was 21, I had uh, flipped three houses, owned three houses and 80 acres of land, and uh, had three cars. And outwardly, everyone would have thought I was successful, and I was on my way to being a a very uh, successful entrepreneur. But inside, it was all empty. And I can look back and say it was worthless. It was futile. It had no bearing upon my eternal destiny. If anything, it was a great detriment. Any life lived apart from Christ, no matter how religious, no matter how disciplined it may be, will prove to be futile at the final day. If Christ is not the one who's ransomed you, you will be the loser no matter how much you may own or do in this world, in this life. When we all stand at the judgment seat on that final day before the great judge, only those who've been ransomed by Christ will be saved. And Peter wants us to take that to heart. We need to remember what we are ransomed from. What were we ransomed from? Well, many things. For instance, we are ransomed from bondage. We are ransomed from the law. We are ransomed from sin, to name a few. We are ransomed from bondage. Before conversion, we lived in bondage to the world and the flesh and the devil. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or in Galatians 5.16, he writes, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, they have a stranglehold on the hearts of those who are still dead in sin. But Christ, he came into this world to deliver us from this bondage to the world, flesh, and devil. He came to destroy the devil's work, all of which he accomplished at the cross of Calvary, through which we have been ransomed. And wouldn't you say that's good news? And not only have we been ransomed from the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we've been ransomed from the law, from the works of the law for salvation. Paul writes in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So we're freed from the law 
as a covenant. Christ fulfilled the covenant of works for us on our behalf. We are freed from the sanctions of the law, freed from the curse of the law. See, the law makes two demands from those who are under it. Either perfect obedience and compliance to all of its precepts, 100% compliance, or if you do not comply perfectly, then it demands the suffering, and you must suffer the curses that are required for those who break it. In our Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 6 and verse 2, our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And once the precepts of the law have been broken, Oh, then the sanctions of the law go into effect. And they demand the punishment of lawbreakers. Once the law is broken, an alarm goes off that shouts out, Guilty, 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 and cries for punishment, punishment, punishment. But Christ came and ransomed God's elect from the curse of the law. We've been ransomed from bondage, ransomed from the law, and also ransomed from sin, from the guilt of sin and the dominion of sin. Now just think about the guilt of sin. When you sin, that makes you guilty in the court of heaven, in the eyes of God. And God, who is a righteous judge, will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He cannot sweep our sins under the rug. They demand justice. They demand to be satisfied. God's holy law has been violated. And the holy judge must punish sin. But God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Puritans would say, God was paying himself out of the blood, scourgings, and sufferings of Christ. And in that, Christ made full payment. Condemnation and payment and pardon, they're all terms of legal forensic guilt they are terms of the courtroom but jesus paid that payment for us you're familiar with the hymn man of sorrows and the second stanza i love the words it says bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You see, outside of Jesus Christ, there's no one who is righteous, not even one, but in Christ. And under his blood, we're pardoned from all of our sins and we're counted righteous by faith in Christ. 
Christ has shed his blood to remove the guilt of sin. As Romans 8, 1 puts it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Just think about it. We're delivered from eternal punishment in hell. We are delivered from the angry wrath of God against our sin because Jesus Christ has made us free from our sins by his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. He has satisfied the law's demands. He has taken our guilt upon himself. As we read in our Old Testament scripture reading in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the guilt of us all. All your sin, all my sin that God hates was put upon Jesus when he hung there on the cross. And when God saw the guilty sinner hanging there on the cross, he punished him with the full force of his wrath. His wrath, his justice, it was satisfied that day at Calvary. So there is no more left for us. We're ransomed from the guilt of sin, but we're ransomed from the dominion of sin. See, sin no longer can uh, dominate us. It can no longer master us. Though we still have the presence of sin in our lives, we're delivered from its power over us. It's lost its power. Its back has been broken, so to say. In Romans 6, 11 through 14, Paul puts it like this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So when we think of the guilt of sin, we think of that forensic, objective courthouse scene where the record of guilt has been cleared. And when we think of the dominion of sin, we think of that existential aspect where sin indwells us and it touches the very core of our lives. And that dominion has been broken. The third stanza of Man of Sorrows says, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, Dear friend, we have such a Savior in Jesus Christ. I wish I could paint the glory of Christ to you with human words, but the language is far too weak to 
give suitable expression for the wonder and majesty of such a Savior. He has ransomed us from bondage. He's ransomed us from sin. And he has ransomed us with his blood. And that's the third sub-thought that Peter wants us to remember. We come thirdly uh, to see uh, that we need to know what we were ransomed with. We know what we've been ransomed from, but what have we been ransomed with? And Peter explains it first negatively here at the end of verse 18. Not with perishable things, namely silver or gold. Now scholars point out how Peter shows the surpassing value of spiritual realities by calling the most precious and abiding abiding metals like silver and gold perishable things. I mean, in the eyes of the world today, we might add diamonds to silver and gold as, you know, some very precious metals or gems. But these precious metals were not uh, perishable in the sense that they would rust or spoil or, or wear out. The word perishable used here in verse 18 is always used in the New Testament of things that will decay or wear out because they belong to this world and this age. See, remember what Peter said earlier in verse 7 here in chapter 1. He mentioned, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Well, it's the same idea here. Uh, Gold may be tested by fire and survive that test, but ultimately it's perishable in light of eternal glory. In fact, you probably already know that gold is going to be used to pave the city streets in the heavenly Jerusalem. We'll be walking all over it. And Peter's lack of appreciation of silver and gold, it goes back to his early days as an apostle. I think of the time when Jesus told Peter to go to the lake and throw in a hook. And the first fish he pulls out, that uh, there was going to be a shekel, which is a silver coin. And he was just going to pull it out and pay for the tax. And remember what Peter said to the lame beggar in Acts 3, 6. He said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Remember what he said to Simon Magus in Acts 8.20? He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So as valuable as these precious metals are in the eyes of men, they'll ultimately perish with this world. They carry no lasting value to your undying soul, and they will be worthless on the day of wrath. 
All the gold in the world will not be able to buy your way into heaven or save your soul. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Jesus Christ can save you. So in Peter's day, slaves were ransomed from their bondage. Yes, they were ransomed with the payments of silver and gold. But thanks be to God, he has chosen people to be ransomed from spiritual bondage with something far more substantial than silver or gold. So having set forth negatively what we are not ransomed with, he now explains it positively. Look at verse 19. He says, you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Let that sink into your heart. The word precious in the Greek means price. And it is found in such passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 23, where Paul says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. We can think of the pearl of great price. It refers to the ransom payment by which slaves were redeemed from slavery. But here Peter uses it in connection with the word blood. What comes to your mind when you think of blood? Do you think of it as that liquid that is pumped by the heart, transporting oxygen and nutrients to ourselves? Do you think of its color? God could have made it blue or yellow if he wanted, but he made it with a a deep red, which captures our attention when we see it. That's why I wore a certain tie today. I realized that I'm an illustrated Bible. It's black and white with red in the middle. Blood is so vivid. It's so stark. Little children are often traumatized when they see it for the first time oozing out of a cut in their body. They... They are scared and frightened, perhaps, by it. And blood represents the life of a person in the Bible. And in Scripture, it takes on a personification. It takes on personal characteristics. We read of it first in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, where the Lord said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And capital punishment is introduced in, with these words in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. It really shows the, the seriousness and the dreadfulness of abortion in our day. The blood of the innocent crying out to heaven for justice. And God ordained that 
there would be no remission of sin. There would be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood that was first typified by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs in the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that when Christ appeared as our great high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not with the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So I just want you to think of Christ's precious blood. The precious blood of Christ. How precious is it? In his book, The Precious Things of God, Octavius Winslow writes, In God's eye, blood is a sacred thing. That one thing, blood, was to fill the world with his glory, heaven with his redeemed, and eternity with his praise. Hence, the sacredness and value of blood in God's view. Among all the precious things of God, there is not one so precious, so inestimable, so influential as the precious blood of Christ. All salvation, all purity, all peace, all holiness, all hope, all heaven is bound up in the atoning blood of Emmanuel. There is no acceptance for the sinner, no cleansing for the guilty, no pardon for the penitent, no sanctification for the believer, but in the vicarious sacrifice of the Son of God. It's precious. It's priceless. As another hymn asks, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or as another hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's one thing I really appreciate about the rich heritage that we have in our hymnal, all of the rich theology of Christ's blood and the atonement are found here in this hymnal, some of which we have sung already this morning. It was R.C. Sproul who said, the most precious thing that has ever been on this earth is the blood of Christ. And when his blood was shed, it was human blood, but it was holy blood. The most valuable blood that was ever spilled. And the praise of Revelation 1, 5 shouts out, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's heavenly manumission. And how these truths help prepare us even to come to the Lord's Supper in a little while. When we think about how our souls have been ransomed by the blood of Christ we're reminded of the price that Jesus paid to set us free. So brethren, when we stand before God on that final judgment day, only one thing, one thing only will matter. 
Have you been ransomed by the blood of Christ? Have you been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? I'm not asking if you attend church regularly. I'm not asking if you read your Bible or say your prayers. What I'm asking is, has Christ Jesus ransomed you with his precious blood? And if not, then turn to him. Go to him by faith and with repentance and plead for his blood to wash you. Because Jesus shed his blood for sinners. And he has said that all who call on him, he will in no wise cast away. If you repent of your sins and if you trust in him and flee to him and plead for his pardon, he will give it to you. Lay hold of him, trust in him, and you will live forever in glory. Well, look once more at verse 19 because finally Peter goes on to explain what we have been ransomed uh, with, uh, that we've been ransomed with the precious blood, but he, he expands on it like that of a, of a lamb without blemish or spot. And here Peter uses the metaphor of a lamb which may point to the spotless Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Peter describes the character of Christ's life here with the adjectives unblemished and spotless. And that refers to the absence of any character defect in the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said, as a lamb, he means by this similitude that we have in Christ, whatever had been shadowed forth by the ancient sacrifices, though he especially alludes to the Paschal lamb as the Passover lamb. He says, Peter, by applying this to Christ, teaches us that he was a suitable victim and approved by God, for he was perfect without any blemish, had he any defect in him, he could not have rightly offered to God, nor could he pacify God's wrath. So he is without defect. He lived a flawless, spotless, sinless life in order that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you and me. And in this lamb without blemish or spot, we see the perfection of Christ in his sinless life. And A.W. Pink said, how refreshing to fix our gaze upon one who is immaculately holy, who passed through the scene unspoiled by its evil. Such was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. For 33 years, he was in immediate contact with sin and yet was never to the slightest degree contaminated by it. He passed through this world rubbing shoulders with the most vile of creatures, and none of it ever rubbed off on him. Just as the rays of the sun can shine upon a stagnant pool without being sullied thereby, so Christ was unaffected by the iniquity which surrounded him. 
He did no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. In him is no sin, 1 John 3.5. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7.26. Christ is that perfect, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who has ransomed us with his blood. So having called us to holy lives, to conduct our lives with that holy reverence and fear in our time of exile, Peter reminds us of the great price that was paid by Jesus Christ to purchase our freedom and to ransom our souls. Christ died as a sacrifice for sin to secure your holiness. So be holy in all of your conduct. And how can you look upon a crucified, bleeding Savior and continue to sin willfully? Remember what it cost Jesus to save you. It cost him everything he could give. It cost him his blood. Will you still hug the chains of sin that Christ died to release you from? Your sins drove the nails into our Savior's hands and feet. Christ shed his blood and he died to redeem you from those sins. How can you go on sinning willfully in light of all this? We've been ransomed by this precious blood once for all. In Christ, we've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We've died so we might live to God in holiness. So may God help us by his grace to live holy lives in obedience to his word, out of gratitude for that precious blood that has ransomed us from our bondage, from our sin, from the law, and has purchased for us forgiveness, salvation, and everlasting life and glory. May Christ come and glorify his word this day. Let's pray. O precious Lord Jesus Christ, we offer our praise and thanksgiving to you for your willingness to come into this world and obey the law that we had broken to fulfill it in righteousness as our substitute and to take upon yourself our guilt and condemnation and punishment to extinguish the wrath of God against us, satisfying the justice of God and magnifying the law of God all on our behalf, so that even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, that we might be made children of God, adopted into that forever family that will enjoy the wonders and glory of heaven forever. Help us that we will live holy lives 
in response to such a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.